says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. It says after these things, that would be after the meeting that Jesus had with Nicodemus that we looked at last week. And so it doesn't say if this was a few days later, a week later, we we don't know. But just this is the next thing chronologically Uh, we find that they are in the general region of the uh, Samaritans, kind of moved up in that direction. They don't know exactly for sure where Anon or Salim were. Uh, They don't know for sure, but they think it was up in the area from Jerusalem, if you went north a little ways, uh, in the southern end of the area of Samaria. Uh, that's where they think it was. I I have no idea because it says here there was lots of water there. And having been over there, uh, there's not a lot of water in the area of Samaria. So I don't know. But the important thing isn't to know exactly where they were as to what uh, went on. Uh, it's focused on baptism again. And John the Baptist was uh, baptizing there. Evidently, John had moved from the area of the Jordan River and moved up into the area of Samaria where he was preaching and baptizing. And in a short distance away, Uh, is where it says Jesus was baptizing, but actually it was his disciples, the disciples of Jesus who were baptizing. And so, uh, and it says that John had not yet been thrown into prison. So um, this gives us a time frame. Later on, uh, Herod has John arrested uh, he uh, was offended by some of in other words, John wasn 't really politically correct, and <laughs> it got him in trouble and so there verse twenty five then there arose a dispute between some of john 's disciples and the Jews about purification now when it says Jews. Uh, that that's not just everybody that walked up and down the street Jewish. This would have been a reference to some of the Jewish leadership, uh, probably religious leadership. And they're contending with the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist, over uh, this thing of purification because John is baptizing uh, for the forgiveness or remittance of sin, 
in anticipation of the coming of Messiah. So it's it's a recognition that, uh, you know, I need to be cleansed, I need to be right with God. We've done everything that we can do at the temple and the sacrifices and all of that that's going on, but I feel like I need to do something personal. So they went to John the Baptist and because word spread that he was doing this and they were baptized for uh, the uh, coming of, of the kingdom of God. They, they actually believed uh, real strongly um, that Messiah was coming. They just had some misguided apprehensions as to what he was going to do and be like when he arrived. And so uh, we didn't have worship this morning, so that's why I'm already up here. So, <laughs> um, people are coming to John to, be, uh, to get their hearts right, uh, to get their hearts right for uh, in, in tes- anticipation of Messiah. They had it right that Jesus was coming. They just had it wrong in their idea of exactly everything he was going to do. They thought he would come in and overthrow the Roman government and set up God's kingdom and and rule Israel uh, with a rod of iron at that moment, as soon as he showed up but that they needed to be right with God for him to come. Well, as you and I know, there's the coming of Messiah has been split into the first and second coming. They didn't know that. And so when Jesus came, only fulfilling part of the prophecies, they rejected him. And the religious community really, really rejected him. And they keep asking questions about different aspects of his ministry. And the issue of, of uh, purification that John's uh, disciples were teaching and what John was teaching and what they believed at the temple were greatly opposed. Again, John's idea of purification was confess your sin, get ready for Messiah to come. At the temple, the, the uh, religious people, they thought it was more in being pompous in how you looked on the outside. And in public, you don't speak to a, a woman, uh, especially if she happens to be a Samaritan woman. Uh, there's just all these outward things. John's was an inward thing. And, the re- and that's the way all religion is, really. Uh, it's outward things uh, that have absolutely nothing to do with being right with God. It's just, but boy, you look right. And you know how to say all the right words and and act right and all, but it doesn't make you pure. It doesn't make you holy. And that's what they're arguing about. And in verse 26, 
We're in chapter 3, uh, verse 26. And it says, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. Meaning, <clears throat> he's getting a bigger crowd over there than what you're getting. And uh, you need to do something, John. But he didn't do anything. He just answered them in verse 27 and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That statement just really uh, is one of these gold mines, uh, all in and of itself. The truth of what that means. And John is just merely saying, as he will explain a little bit later, that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And if I were to be the one that everybody would be continuing to come to, then it would be given to me from heaven. But it's not. It's not given to me. And so I must decrease, and Jesus must increase. But there's more to it than just that. Anything that you come to understand and know about God, about Jesus about his word, about walking with the Lord, living for the Lord, serving the Lord, all of that, you may be taught here on earth from a human being, but the truth of it comes from heaven. Whatever it is that you know about the Lord Jesus is given to you from God in heaven. And a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Kind of also strips away our bragging rights. Oh, boy, I know this, I I know. You may, but you didn't know nothing until it was given to you. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, again, this is John the Baptist speaking, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He, and then he gives this illustration of how it works out. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. In other words, John is saying, I am so happy that first of all, I heard from God. And secondly, the message that I gave is true because of what you see happening And I am so fulfilled because of it. If we could all only see 
the truth and reality of what God is doing in our lives, through our lives, around us, and have the same kind of joy that John the Baptist. John knew his his days were numbered. He, John knew that he couldn't. He, if Messiah is to to rise up and be who he's proclaimed to be, John knew that he must diminish and fade into the back uh, or the background. I don't know that if he knew in his heart that he was going to be in trouble with Herod and end up being beheaded. I don't know if he knew that part, but he knew that he had to fade away. And yet he says he was fulfilled and full of joy. Let's us know a lot about the heart of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. In verse 31, He who comes from above is above all. He who speaks is of the earth and earthly and speaks of the earth, but he who comes from heaven is above all. I think he's comparing himself with Jesus here. Uh, when I speak, I am of the earth. I'm down here and I speak of earthly things. But Messiah, Jesus, when he comes, he's from heaven and he will speak of heavenly things. So he's just, again, uh, taking another opportunity to point people to Jesus, point them to Jesus. And what he has seen and heard meaning John is speaking about Jesus, what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. Um, That is so true. Hardly anyone received the testimony of Jesus, even though he is God's son sent to be here on earth. uh, So few received him. And that's what John is saying here. Verse 33, but he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Meaning, uh, when, you, when, you, when they chose to believe in Jesus, when they chose to uh, follow him, they were giving credence to who God is and that God is true. That he's not a, a liar, in other words, but that God is true. Verse 32, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. No one receives his testimony. In verse 33, but he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. Uh, Verse 34, uh, John the Baptist uh, here again speaking of God the Father sending the Son. Uh, He whom God has sent, meaning Jesus whom God has sent. Um, I find it interesting. I don't know who did it, but someone read through the Gospel of John and counted the number of times that there is a reference to God sending his son. 
It's 39 times. And as I contemplated that, I wondered what's, what was the significance of that. And I think this is it, that over and over and over and over again, the Gospel of John is asserting the deity of Jesus Christ, that God sent him, his son, from heaven. And uh, it just states it over and over again. And one of the, the biggest arguments that you'll run into today outside the church, and sadly to say inside the church in some circles, is that uh, nowhere in Scripture does it say that Jesus is God's Son. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that God sent him and yet, when you read the Gospel of John and go to looking, it's written all throughout, it's, it's permeated throughout it, uh, that God sent his Son. Uh, very important for us to understand and believe and know that Jesus, um, he was sent here on a mission, and that was to save us. Uh, to redeem us. And why? Because John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, there again, he gave him his only begotten son. And uh, it just reaffirms God's love for us. I find that interesting too because the apostle John who wrote this is also known as the disciple of love. And he portrays God as a God of love. In First John, uh, he uh, affirms that uh, again and again, <clears throat> that God is love. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he do, who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Um, the wrath of God, that, that's a topic that we really don't like to talk about too much. But it is something that is real. Um, I just mentioned the love of God because God so loved the world. He sent his son. And we uh, read where God is love. But God is also just. Uh, he's righteous. And if he's going to be true, he's got to be true to the promises that he made both that we would look at like good and bad. We would look at the good promises as like my rewards that I get once I get to heaven. That would be a good promise. Um, bad promise uh, consists in what we call the wrath of God to those who reject Jesus Christ and part of that is the, the promise that there is eternal punishment. And uh, that's 
contained within the wrath of God. And I'm thankful that God is not like us, or at least not like me, because I I have a shorter fuse, much shorter than than Jesus. And when I get that fuse lit, it doesn't take long to reach the exploding point. And, you know, Katie, bar the door. Y'all have heard that sign. I don't know where it came from. But, you know, bar the door whenever I feel the wrath coming on, you know, explode. I don't like that in me. But if we're truthful, we all experience that in ourselves some. And I am so thankful that God's not that way. Because his wrath is also just. It's, it's justified, but it's also just. He gives us every opportunity uh, that you can think of to come to Christ. I, um, I knew a fella from the time I was, I don't know, 14 or 15 years old. Uh, he worked uh, on a ranch out there in West Texas, and and uh, I'd visit with him. I worked around him a lot, and, he, and the the man just—he was a great person, but he would have absolutely nothing to do with going to church. Or you mentioned Jesus; he he just run backwards. Uh, he he was just anti. He, he he believed there was a God, but he also believed the same way the Native Americans would do the happy hunting ground and and all of that. And he also believed in reincarnation and uh, just a whole bunch of stuff like that. And <clears throat> when I first felt called into the ministry, I thought it was my moral obligation to tell him about Jesus. And I almost made an enemy out of him for doing so. And I would bring it up every few days working, and, and he, he finally made it real clear to me he didn't want to hear that anymore. And I realized, well, if I want to still be friends with him, I'll, I, I can't just be open about it. And, and so I tried to live my life as I could around him. Uh, to this day, he has still rejected Jesus. He just won't. But I thought it was my place that God had put me in his life and him in my life in order that I tell him about Jesus. But as I got to know him more over the years, I discovered that he had a granddad that was uh, very responsible for uh, several churches being in existence. And uh, one camp meeting out in West Texas, the buildings and all that were there, that he had paid for them. There was a very, very dedicated man, and he would drag this man as a kid, to church constantly. Took him to the camp meeting. 
And then he, over the years, I discovered that there had been lots of others who had tried to tell him about Jesus. And I learned through that process that I was just another one in a long series of people who had tried to tell him about Jesus. The lesson for me in it was uh, he wasn't going to go to hell because I failed. And I didn't tell him about Jesus because I found out there had been a whole host of others. He is going to end up in hell because he rejected the message since he was a boy of 13 or 14 when he first started being taken to church and hearing preachers at the camp meeting and all. And I come to realize he has heard the gospel clearly since a very young man and has rejected it. And if he ends up going to hell, being separated from God and experiencing the wrath of God, it'll be of his own choosing. And as I have gone along over the years, I have discovered that most people at least people of my age and older that have rejected Jesus here in America, they've been told the gospel many times over. And they've rejected and rejected and rejected. And I say all that to say that the wrath of God, where it says, And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. That's a reference to eternal life. They won't see that. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God abides on him. Now, I understand what the wrath of God is. i just read a couple of... of, uh, passages if I can find my correct notes here these are from last week (laughs) okay Revelation chapter 6 beginning in verse 12 I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. 
See, all these bad things are happening. This is toward the, the very end of, of uh, the age of the earth here, uh, when everything is uh, coming to a conclusion. But the people who are here at that time, they recognize uh, that God exists, that he sits on the throne, and that these things are coming from him. See, there's, today, when, say, uh, the hurricane comes, uh, or a tornado, or the derecho winds up in the plains and blows things away, people, have you noticed how the newscasters will write it and say, an act of God? And I'd like to correct them. It might be an act of Satan. But it's not an act of God. Those things are just common to man because we live on this earth. Those things happen. But during the latter part of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, that last three and a half years, is known as a period of the wrath of God. And we just read a Paul small portion of what's going to happen. But the interesting thing about it is the people alive during that time, they know who it is that's sending these things. And they still, rather than, we, rather than read it, and the people repented of their sin and their sorceries and, and their devil worship and, and everything else that they're doing, we read that fall on us speaking to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, the Lamb of God. I just read that because of um, the verse in the Gospel of John speaking of the wrath of God. There's one other verse I want to read. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 19 of Revelation, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. This is a reference to Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, and, and notice the wording that is used here, so that you really get a visual picture. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It's Jesus. The wrath of God 
is being withheld right now. When we see the hurricane come and wipe all kinds of things out and, and wind and destruction and famine and drought and all, uh, that's not the wrath of God. Uh, that can't even be compared to the outpouring of the wrath of God. When an earthquake is so bad that every island flees away and all the mountains are leveled, that's the wrath of God at the end of the tribulation period. Huge difference between uh, seven, eight, and nine point. Uh, this thing's going to be like a hundred point. It's, it's going to be bad. The wrath of God. And endless punishment then for those who reject Christ. The wrath of God. The little side note on this. Uh, there's a movement within the church today called the Emerging Church. And one of their tenets of their belief is that they want, first of all, they want to take away the blood of Christ and not talk about the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross. And so thereby they don't want to talk about sin. They want everybody to feel good. They want everybody happy when you leave church. And, and they just want everybody happy. Uh, but on the other end of the line, one of the things that they are removing from uh, their teaching and what they believe is the wrath of God. Because they said, for after all, we don't want to scare anybody into church. Well, you know what? There is some good in being scared. I remember as a little kid riding my tricycle one time in our front yard. And I looked down, and there was a rattlesnake. And he was all like this, about knee-high on me, just right there. You talk about scared. That scaredness got me out of there fast. I have a healthy respect for snakes. Uh, I just give them plenty of room until I can get the gun and <laughs> take care of them. I don't even like doing it with a shovel. That's too close. <laughs> fear. There's nothing wrong with fear. It, it can cause good things. I was reading the book of Revelation and scared to death the night that I heard Billy Graham preaching and I was scared because I read this and I did have enough sense to know that this stuff is true. I didn't understand it at that time, but I knew it was true. And I knew about the wrath of God even before I was saved and it scared me. And so that night I heard Billy Graham whenever he was talking. My heart was already prepared. Well, this emerging church today, they don't want to scare anybody. And um, I beg to disagree. 
There's lots of what Jesus had to say. It was very scary. Uh, get your attention. And the reason is because he knows us. He, he knows we need to be a little scared. You know, I, I, I wasn't scared of my dad, but I had a healthy respect for him as a kid <laughs> because I was a little bit afraid of his belt. And uh, I, I needed it. Um, but it was also good for me. Uh, it kept me in tow. And a little bit of healthy fear of God is okay. Verse 1 of chapter 4, we'll just touch on this real quick. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples. So uh, earlier it said Jesus was baptizing. But here it explains it, and it says, actually, Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing himself, but his disciples were. Well, when he knew that the Pharisees were stirring up trouble, verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. And then uh, this is where we'll pick up next week, where it says but he needed to go through Samaria, and then we'll get into that whole story but I wanted, in reading this, um, there is some confusion about baptism. And um, I hope not to add more confusion to it, but to explain uh, a little bit about baptism. Uh, first of all, in the Old Testament, uh, among the Jewish people, they practiced baptism. But it, uh, it was totally different. That was a different age. Their baptism uh, was available to anyone who was a non-Jew who wanted to become a Jew. Uh, sometimes uh, you fell in love with a Jewish girl or a girl fell in love with a Jewish man, and, but in order to be married to, uh, to him, you had to proselyte into Judaism. Part of that process was that you had to go be baptized by one of the uh, officials from the temple. And uh, they also had a baptism of repentance that they uh, practiced, though it wasn't very widespread. And you hardly ever hear of, of it. That was the Old Testament. Then comes John the Baptist, and he baptized, uh, calling for people to repent, and his baptism was more a literal uh, baptism of repentance in anticipation of the coming of Jesus. And it, uh, it had nothing to do with becoming a Jew like the Old Testament. It had nothing to do with identifying with Christ like the church. John the Baptist, was his was totally different. Well, then John the Baptist is gone, and Jesus' disciples are baptizing the same way 
uh, a baptism of repentance and preparation for Jesus. Well, then we go forward a ways. Jesus, he uh, hung on the cross. He died, was buried, and rose again. And so uh, then the apostles went about, and Jesus even commanded them, Go ye therefore into all the ends of the earth, uh, teaching them wherever you go, make disciples, and baptize them. And so the apostles went. And when someone believed in Jesus, they would be baptized. And by uh, putting together the whole stories in the book of Acts and, and a few minor descriptions of it, we understand that uh, the baptism that we go through in the water for the church is identifying with Christ because he died, was buried, and rose again. So when a person is baptized, they're buried and then raised the same way, identifying with Jesus. But you're also confessing Jesus, saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. I trust in him. I believe in him. I, ex- I have already accepted him. Baptism doesn't save you. Uh, it's just a, 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 something that you do after the fact. John the Baptist, he baptized because they anticipated Christ and repented in anticipation, we're baptized identifying with what Christ has already done, the past, and what it means to me uh, or to us, and saying, I believe, I trust, I accept him. And so I hope that clears up some of the... When you read baptizing... It means different things to different folks in different times. Uh, simple as that. And, um, and then, you know, along come uh, different churches today and they have different beliefs about it. Um, there's, I always say there's uh, people and what they believe. There's the church and what they believe. And then there's the Bible and what it actually says. And um, a lot of what the church uh, historically has said about all kinds of things has not been correct. And uh, some of what they've taught about, uh, you know, I mean, we argue over these things. Do you immerse? Do you immerse completely? Do you, are you really baptized if your tip of your nose didn't go all the way under? You know, and then... Well, what about those who sprinkle? Well, that's not good enough because you really need to pour it over them. And then next guy says, well, it doesn't matter if you belong to another church and you were baptized as a youth. If you want to belong to this church, you've got to be baptized again. Like baptism is a rite of admission into uh, the fellowship of, of a church. So you've got all kinds of things, but the basic thing 
is what the Bible says. It's identifying yourself with Christ. Um, that's bottom line. Should we do it? Yeah, we should. Um, it's, uh, but it's not mandatory. It's, it's not something that you must do. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that uh, you have given to us uh, that which is from above, namely Jesus and the truth and your word, and that you have given us the ability to hear and understand. Father, I'm asking your hand of blessing to be upon every person here this morning and that your hand would be upon them as they leave here in this week ahead and that you'd be with them, keep us all safe, watch over us. In Jesus' name, amen.